Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Thursday, March 29th, 2012, and our special guest is Dick Gale, who is the uh, director of um, the Institute for Teaching at the California Teachers Association. Welcome, Dick. Thank you very much, Steve. It's great to be here. Really appreciate your coming on the show. The Future of Education is a Web 2.0 Labs project. Uh, and we appreciate Blackboard Collaborate providing this room. It is also the fifth anniversary of Classroom 2.0, which is a lot of fun for me. Uh, 65,000 members all talking about the use of social media and Web 2.0 in the classroom. We have some fun fifth year anniversary projects, including a book project. Um, go to classroom20.com, click on the book. If we're looking for lots of contributions on how you're using Web 2.0 on social media in the classroom and would love to have you contribute. Also, it's the fifth anniversary of our uh, activities at ISTE and Q, and ISTE Unplugged is now the umbrella for all that we do at the ISTE conference, which is at the end of June, including the all-day unconference the Saturday before, which is being rebranded Social Ed Con. But uh, we sure hope that you'll go to ISTE Unplugged and look for those fun crowdsourced activities. Coming up in April is our first annual, first of what we hope will be an annual social learning summit sponsored by Discovery Education. And we're still taking session proposals. These are 30 minute sessions, also on using social media and Web 2.0 in the classroom. We have a great set of sessions that have already been approved and are starting to appear on the website, sociallearningsummit.com. Uh, coming up in October, our second Future of Libraries conference, sponsored by San Jose State University. Uh, October 3rd through 5, that's library2012.com or library20.com. And then our third Global Education Conference, November 12th to 16th. Uh, waiting dates still are two fun conferences that we were committed to, just haven't got dates for gaming and education and the alternate education conference. Coming up on the future of education, next week Howard Rheingold talks to us about his new book, NetSmart. Fun to have Howard back on the show. Joseph Grinney, one of the co-authors of Crucial Conversations and Change Anything, is going to come on and talk about vital behaviors and um, lots of things, Dick, that I think will be right up your alley. Appreciative inquiry, positive deviance. I'll make sure it's there. there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, Jennifer Fox, the week after that, on to heck with the traditional content. Uh, Jennifer's very interesting. She wrote a book called um, Your Child's Strengths. Uh, she's been on the show before, and she started a school in Texas now on strength-based uh, education. Also will be a part of our topic today. Mark Tucker will talk about surpassing Shanghai and the OECD tests uh, results. Tracy Willen-Dalgenti on Society 3.0. Uh, on April 18th, a really fun early show in the day, John Hunter, the fourth grade teacher, will talk about his World Peace Game uh, new movie coming out in, in advance of that new movie. Anyway, lots there. Hope you'll join us for another conversation. If you missed our conversation uh, on Tuesday with Alec Koros, it is up and the recording is up and available at futureofeducation.com. Really fun conversation uh, on open teaching. Before that, David Warlick talked to us, Kathy Davidson on her new book, uh, Now You See It. That was a really brilliant show. If you missed that show, I do recommend it. Mimi Ito as well, just a fascinating interview with her. Uh, we had a panel on Seth Godin's Stop Stealing Dreams book. 
Anyway, lots up there in recorded form, more than you have any possibility of listening to, but pick and choose. We hope there's something there that's valuable for you. So now you get a chance to tell us where you're participating from. To the left of the whiteboard, look for the star. It's the second icon down. You can click on it twice, then click on the map. Feel free to let us know the time and the temperature. I'm wondering where in China that dot is. We don't have our usual Australian crowd. But fun to see that we've got at least someone who's not in North America. Shanghai, Tony, welcome. So glad to have you here. Been a busy week, a little bit of a smaller group than usual, but we really appreciate your being here. And this is this promises to be a really fun conversation. I'm very excited about it. So, Dick, um, I found you because I was doing a search on the web on appreciative inquiry and in education, and your website came up. The Institute for Teaching. Would you tell us a little bit about what the Institute for Teaching is? Sure. And, and can I say also, uh, before we start, I'm just honored to be asked to participate in this whole project. And looking at the list of uh, conversations that you've conducted uh, puts me in awe. So thank you very much for including us. I'm glad we came up on your internet search as well. Um, so especially associated with a concept like appreciative inquiry. Uh, the Institute for Teaching is part of the California Teachers Association. Uh, we're part of the foundation arm of the California Teachers Association, which essentially is the state teachers union in California. We represent approximately 275,000 teachers in the state. And we're the foundation 501c3 arm of CTA. Been around since the mid-60s. And only in the last um, about three years, we started receiving dues money directly from our members who make contributions, voluntary contributions to the foundation. So we feel that our job is to be uh, responsive to our members in terms of supporting them uh, as classroom practitioners and giving them a sense that uh, the union can also speak uh, for teachers when it comes to the critical issues of pedagogy and the whole idea of real world activity that they're engaged in on a daily basis. Many, many of our members uh, you know, take for granted that the California Teachers Association will provide you know, consultation and services in the areas of negotiations and politics and uh, you know, representation. But many of them also ask, where's our presence in terms of our you know, profession in the classroom? And so we hope that the IFT is giving them an opportunity to realize that we have support for the work that they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis. As a 501c3, in fact, um, we are not uh, allowed to be involved in politics. And I know that many people who are in California automatically assume that CTA is a political vehicle of some type. And we feel good about the fact that we're the classroom arm uh, of our organization. So Peggy put a link in there uh, for CTA. I put in the link for teacher-driven change, although as you and I just spoke about, uh, that's actually your old website as of today, because your newest version had some link issues. Um, Correct. But certainly, people can go there and, and do, we'll get information. And within fairly short order, probably the new site will be up. 
I'm really interested in how these, I mean, if I were to categorize the types of conversations that are on your website and the, and the projects that you're doing, strength-based thinking, teacher-driven change, appreciative inquiry, positive deviance, building cultures of success, I categorize those as uh, somewhat forward-thinking, less accepted ideas. Um, but you, you've identified, self-identified the Institute for Teaching as the reform, school reform arm of the California Teachers Association. Do you think most teachers understand the kinds of things you're talking about? Are you preaching to the choir, or do you end up having to educate teachers as well? Unquestionably, uh, it's, a, it's, it's a little bit of both. I mean, teachers like the idea that someone's paying attention to what they're doing in their day-to-day -day work. But in many ways, we've been so, um, I hate to use this phrase, but it's, it's actually true, especially in California, that we've been beaten down by uh, the punitive nature of some of the state and federal laws that have dominated the scene since the early part of this decade, um, since the early part of this, this new century. And as a consequence, the, the ideas that we're putting forth in terms of strength-based uh, appreciative inquiry ideas um, people hear that stuff and, yeah, they have to be educated on it, but it also gives them a sense of hope. Uh, and many people who come to the training sessions that my partner and I conduct around the state do use that word in discussion with us afterwards, that the session kind of left them with a sense of hope that they could, you know, not only regain control of the profession, but regain control of the whole narrative about how we're going to accomplish real reform uh, in our schools. And that's very gratifying to us that we're making that conversation happen in a state as large as California. It feels like the, the discussions uh, uh, about teachers and students really uh, move in parallel, right? So um, it's hard to imagine creating uh, strength-based environments for students without having strength-based environments for teachers. Do you find that you have to convince administrators of these values as well? I think that's absolutely the case. And um, it is not to say that we can paint administrators or even teachers, certainly for that matter, with one broad brush. You know, there are certain uh, people who've practiced in the profession over a period of years and chosen for a variety of reasons to leave the classroom and gone into administrative work or gone into support work. And for many of them, they have never lost that sense of what it meant to be a teacher and what it meant to be working directly with the students. But there are that other group that, again, those are the ones that are going to require education because they don't have that typical heart connection with the classroom and understand the value of what teachers bring to the table in terms of understanding the dynamics of what's going on as well as being able to put forth ideas, especially from our point of view, strength-based ideas that will transform the landscape of the education, let's say, at that particular school. Can I just add so, one thing? Because you know, you, you, you ask can about add as much as you want. Yeah, let me just add something about administrators. You know, our our whole thought about the change process uh, begins with a desire or an idea uh, that are that is being talked about by a group of educators at a school or within a district uh, that they want to make that they want to change things. But as we go through our thought process about how we're going to have something that comes out the other end, one of the real thoughts that always uh, enters our head is, do we have really the capacity to act during this process of change? And oftentimes that 
capacity to act component comes down to the type of relationship that we have with the school administration or the district administration where they can see the value of empowering the educators at that school to make a real fundamental change. And so where do we find those places? Um, we have a project in Southern California in the Palm Springs Unified District where we have an incredible middle school principal who sees a huge value in this. And we're able to work and bring about fundamental change in this middle school because we have that support and we have that sense of teachers are feeling empowered. Um, we have that in Merced, at the high school in Merced where we're working on reducing the dropouts and increasing the graduation rate uh, with very supportive administration. So I think that's part and parcel of how we're going to have it, some success is that we don't meet with resistance at that level. So I want to give you a chance to, to kind of describe the core principles of the work you do. As a preface to that question, I'm curious as to what, you know, sort of what educational thinkers have really influenced you? Okay. Well, again, talking about the core principles of, of what we do, um, I would say that we are teacher-driven, strength-based change. I mean, those are the two things that I go out and start all conversations around. The idea that uh, if change is going to be sustainable and in the best interest of our educators and our students, it needs to start from the classroom level up as opposed from the administration, district level down, or even you know, far farther removed, the corporation level or the foundation level down. So we, we strongly believe in the idea that this happens at the local level. And then the second thing we believe in is that it needs to be based on what's working and it needs to be based upon something that will energize people to move ahead as opposed to, I can tell you vividly, going into a school, the same school that's in Palm Springs where we were trying to introduce the idea of working with them to create something different at that school and they were looking so skeptically at us as we stood there the first time we ever met them. And this was May of last year. And finally, one guy raised his hand. He said, are you going to come in here and tell us how bad our test scores are? Because we're kind of tired of having people come in here and tell us how bad our test scores are. And you know, luckily, I was able to respond, well, you know, frankly, we haven't looked at your test scores. And that changes the whole dynamic of what we talk about. Because when we focus on strengths, and we believe that as a core principle, this is what we something we have to be consistently applying in our schools. Um, that we have a different kind of conversation as an outcome of that. And that's what we're trying to, you know, stress. That's what we're trying to create in our schools. And California is a daunting place to do that. We have 9,000 schools in this state with over 1,000 school districts. So there's a lot of challenges out there, but there's also a lot of sense of this is the right time for us to be reaching out and having these kinds of conversations where teachers can make a difference because they're they're realizing that the 10 years or 12 years of punitive measures hasn't produced markedly different results. We have higher test scores because we're focusing on the test, but we don't necessarily have better learning. And that's what we're try trying to achieve is that sense of learning as opposed to achievement uh, on some academic performance index. So I want to drill down on strength-based thinking. I pulled from some of your material on the website uh, six bullet points of what strength-based thinking is. I don't expect you to be able to rattle them right off, but um, it, you know it is interesting that in this example you give, you're, you're not looking at the deficit, right? In fact, the final point is ignoring deficits. For most people, that would be counterintuitive. Um, why does that work? 
Well, it's, it's not a matter of ignoring realities. We are, we are experts in the realities of what's going on in the school. It's a matter of choosing to focus on those things that work. So for example, uh, when I mentioned the Merced High School project, uh, I had to correct myself because it's not a dropout reduction project. It is a graduation increasing project. It's just the f that framing of the issue in positive sense better describes what kind of work is going on on the campus. Because in that particular case, the approach is not to focus on the dropouts and the kids that are potential dropouts, but instead to focus on the kids that are succeeding in staying in school and the kids that are actually moving towards graduation, despite the fact that they have the same you know, background as many of these kids that drop out. And then by asking them what they're doing to achieve that kind of success where they can move through and do what they need to do to continue their lives in a positive way, we have a whole different conversation. And that's what we've seen happen at Merced High over the last three years that we've been on campus. It's changed the conversation. It's changed the culture of that high school. So that's, the, that's why the approach of looking at strengths and dealing with strengths is so fundamentally different than what we've been dealing with. Because in most cases, we're looking at identifying deficiencies and then trying to specifically come up with you know, objectives or strategies to correct those deficiencies. The narrative around deficiencies, around not being successful, the test-driven narrative, seems so powerful. And what you're describing really, we've talked about this on the show before, reminds me a lot of the work of Edwards Deming and uh, especially in sort of looking at uh, workers in a, in a manufacturing environment. But it does feel like we have a really hard time turning that secondary narrative, the more thoughtful, strength-based narrative, into a primary narrative. Um, are there ways to do that, or will this narrative, do you think, always be kind of a secondary narrative? That's a very good question. Um, I think, given the type of environment in which we find ourselves working, it'll be a secondary uh, narrative, as long as we're focused on accountability. And we, you know, we worship at the altar of these numbers that can be generated, these test scores that can be published, these quantitative analyses of how many bubbles a student fills in correctly. And as long as we're dominated by that type of environment, both the state and national level, then I think we'll be a secondary thing. But I don't know that that's the permanent condition of the public education system, is that where we are today is where we're going to be or where we have to be. And that's what we're hopefully working toward and trying to educate our teachers about. So a great percentage of students or their parents are told at some point that they're deficient, right? that they don't measure up, uh, that they have failed. If you look at the graduation rates and then you look at actually college completion rates, you'd have to believe that a pretty significant percentage of students leave the system with the feeling that they have failed. Mm -hmm. And I'm guessing that that's true for teachers as well. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't speak to you know the collective aspirational goals of our teachers and why they leave the profession. Probably has a, a variety of answers. I know that they are leaving in numbers that are frighteningly high. I know that they are choosing to exercise their talents. You know, as LeBron James said when he moved, I want to put my talent on display, and I think they're finding other avenues for that. Uh, here in California, we noticed a drop in the number of people going into the profession, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40% drop over the last few years in terms of the number of people majoring in the state university system 
in education. And so we know that there's you know, issues with people not being retained into the system or choosing not to enter the system. And that's why we have to change the whole idea of what we expect from our teachers and what this career can offer uh, to young people who choose, to, or even to people who are in second careers, who choose to make that uh, difference with children. And um, you know, we can keep kicking the we can keep keep kicking the numbers down the road, and and we do that very well. And we get in a lot of debates at the policy level when it comes to what these numbers mean and and uh, whether it's okay for the public to see them or not. But ultimately, it's going to lead to a demand for change, and the change is going to have to come in another way. And that's why I, the studies of what's happening in schools in other countries, some of the people affiliated with IFT who've had an opportunity to teach abroad, and some of the people who are affiliated with us who bring great talent to our discussions as public educators are coming up with ideas that are not, um, that are not status quo, but they're also not in the realm of uh, quantitative analysis of how well we're doing as a, as a profession. Okay, so at one point earlier you used the phrase, um, you said something about heart in schools, and I immediately thought of Roland Barth, and that was what triggered my interest in who you read. But who are sort of your pedagogical heroes? Well, you know, in this profession, uh, I read people that whose work is going to be uh, inspirational. So I read people like um, Robert Moses, who wrote a, a book called The Radical Equations about the need to uh, really do fundamental different things as how we teach mathematics. And we have a program in IFT that is inspired by that, that book and by his work. Um, I read a guy named uh, David Cooper Ryder, who talks a lot about the power of appreciative inquiry and what that kind of uh, research and evaluation can mean. Um, I don't know if you or your listeners are familiar with a gentleman named Jerry Sternen. Uh, who wrote pretty eloquently about uh, what he discovered, essentially, it's the whole idea of positive deviance when he was doing work in the field, especially in the area of public health and nutrition back in the 70s, and how that's led us to have an opportunity to try to apply those same principles in a public educational setting. Those are the type of people that I read. I guess I should so also I, give credit. Let me give credit yeah, to one ahead. more. My philosophical guru in this job is the man who immediately preceded me in my uh, in this profession uh, as the manager of the Institute for Teaching, the guy that I was talking to you about offline who's working uh, on his ranch in southern Arizona now in retirement, but is truly my inspirational uh, guru and one of the great thinkers, Dr. Yale Wishnick, who worked as an educator for his whole career and just retired a few years ago, allowed me an opportunity to take on this responsibility, but I still utilize his thought process to keep the IFT in a, you know, in a place where we, we can really be proud of the type of philosophical underpinnings that we have and what we have to offer to our teachers. Okay, we're getting questions in the chat about the specifics. So Robert Moses and the book was Radical Equations. Mm -hmm. David Cooper Ryder, who I think started Appreciative Inquiry, right? Yes, I believe he did. Right, and you know a what? number of books there. Go ahead. Just on a technical note, when I clicked on a link that one of the listeners provided to the CTA, I, it took me to the web page for the CTA, and now I can't seem to get back to our screen. So I'm at a little bit of a loss as to what everybody's. <laughs> oh, no. So just, are you on a Windows or a Mac machine? I'm on a Windows. So Good just down at the bottom, you should see a purple icon for yeah. 
collaborate and it should pop it back up. And that's not happening. So, okay, let me uh, let me continue with, with the narrative without going through my technical difficulties. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, so, David right. Cooper writer, a pursuit of inquiry. Now, uh, I, I do I did order a book recently on positive deviance, and I'm wondering if it's the Jerry Stern Sternum. One? Jerry Sternin, yes, yeah, S-T-E-R-N-I-N. Jerry and Monique Sternin. I think uh, that's the one I ordered. I believe it is. That's the one that's out there. It's kind of the whole, you know, Bible of the field. He passed away, unfortunately. Uh, he was he was signed on to be our consultant to work with this group at Merced High, and then passed away of cancer. Uh, and shortly right shortly thereafter, you know, within a matter of a couple of months. So he's missed, but we're still working with people from Tufts University and the public de the positive deviance initiative that he founded, and his wife still still runs. Okay, and then the final one was your predecessor, and can you tell us his name again? Yes, his name is Dr. Yale Wishnick, Y-A-L-E-W-I-S-H-N-I-C-K. He just published a book, and if I could, um, when I get back into my internet, I will be able to give you the name of that book uh, that's out there, but it combines a lot of the philosophy that we put forth as an IFT. I'm sure that Peggy George in the chat will do some diligent searching for us. Okay, so let's shift into appreciative inquiry. Tell us wh what that is and where you, how you see that tip being um, implemented in a school reform effort. Um, appreciative inquiry brings out uh, some powers, we believe, that um, exist within any system. Um, again, bringing the focus to on what's working. So let me give you a practical example of how we're trying to apply that principle in uh, a change project. We're working at Desert Springs Middle School in Desert Hot Springs, California, which is in Riverside County near the Colorado River and, and Palm Springs. And it's a school, middle school, that has 91 or 92 percent, I'm thinking off the top of my head, of economically disadvantaged students. So it's just a high poverty level with a variety of uh, uh, racial background, but a pretty high poverty level across the board. They were in uh, program improvement, which is one of the sanctions under No Child Left Behind. They were in year six, which is pretty much as far down the list as you can go without the continue being in year six for seems forever after that point. And so they've had gone through various sanctions. They had changed administrators. They had, uh, in fact, just recently have the number of students in the school and opened a new, a new campus not too far. So they went from having 1,500 6th, uh, 7th, and 8th graders now having about um, half that number, half that number of teachers as well. But when we went in there to work with them, we started with the idea that we would talk to them as a group about what they felt was working at the school. And under the new principal, she had already uh, had an opportunity in her brief tenure to sit down one-on-one -on -one with every one of the staff members and ask them three things that they liked and three things that they didn't like about the school. And she was willing to share that information with the IFT so that we were able to take all of those answers and boil them down to a, with a program that our Dr. Wishnick uses called the Galileo program where we take not only what's being said but um, the patterns of the words, the combinations of the words and come up with some general themes. And then uh, after we have that information, which we're going to go share, we shared back with the faculty in a, you know, in a large group setting about what it was that they said to us or they said to their principal, 
we then decided to use the same process on the students. So we took about 150 to 200 uh, randomly selected students at that school, and over the course of two days, we interviewed each of those students, asked them a series of 10 questions, and mostly focused on what is it about school that you like, what is it that makes you most interested, what is it that you most uh, find most gratifying when you interact with adults, those kinds of questions, and then took that same analysis where we fed all that information through our little system and came up with some basic themes, which then the group of uh, teachers who's our leadership team, which they were uncovered, you know, by the zero fact that we put out the all call and said, who with the staff wants to work with IFT on a project? And you know how that happens. Teachers are busy people, but some of them showed up. And then among those who showed up, four of them decided they want to be the core leadership team. And so it's among those four where we generated that information and that leadership they presented to the entire staff. This is about a month ago. Uh, this is what our staff said. This is what our students said. Now what are we going to do with this information? And they proceeded to do what you know teachers do in a professional development setting. They started talking about what this information meant to them, how they were going to try to apply it, in fact, one of the exercises was, what are you going to do differently tomorrow with the information you've seen today? And we collected a whole bunch of very interesting comments from teachers about how they were going to be different the next day even at school. I'm going to stand at the door and I'm going to greet every student as they come in. Those, those kinds of things are tangible in terms of how they impact the culture of the school. And ultimately, we hope to build on many of the ideas that they presented. But it's still going to be their plan. It's going to be something that they generated. It's going to be something that's going to come from themselves. And it will reflect their school's reality. So that we can't package this type of approach like appreciative inquiry and say, OK, we're going to create a binder and take it out to the next school. And this is going to work for them too. I think we have to say this is an approach. If you're interested as a group of teachers, professionals, administrators, classified staff of working in this realm. Do you want to go on board for a you know for a, a trip together? This is where we're finding success is when we can get the teachers and the administrators and you know to have this this journey that they believe strength based which will yield something differently than all the information that they've generated over the last ten years about how crummy their test scores were. So those who are listening um, will recognize that you, you know, that my invitation to you to come on the show is because you're echoing so many of the sentiments that have come out in the past five years as a part of what we've talked about. Mm -hmm. um, we've looked at uh, sort of 21st century skills models where a committee gets together, has a very engaging conversation, what would be 21st century skills? And instead of pushing down that process of an engaged conversation, they push down the actual skill set with the expectation that people will just sort of comply with those findings. So what I hear you saying is that this, this is, these processes are locally based mm -hmm. um, and that they are inclusive and often strengthened by the voluntary nature of those who choose to participate. Have I captured that fairly? Absolutely. I wish I was that eloquent. Yes, you have captured it very fairly. And so then we I'm, I'm just loving this. I'm soaking it up. And I'm trying to think, I mean, part of what I hear you saying is you can't package this and just expect others to do it. That, that in many ways, like democracy, this is about helping people create their own engaged conversations. That's our point of view, and that's what we think is going to make a difference. But like you say, the challenge is daunting when we have 9,000 schools out there in the public sector uh, in California. And we're doing it one school at a time. But we're doing it in such a way that we're feeling like, you know, there's a reason why this journey is worth the effort. And IFT is small. Uh, but we have money from our, our members to support this kind of work. And we're proud to be able to go out and tell the members, this is how we're spending your dues dollars. This is 
delightful. Okay, I found a book on on Amazon called From a Culture of Dependency to a Culture of Success. Could that be uh, Wishnick's book? That is his book. Okay, good. I'll put the link in. Thank uh, you very much. Shannon. Okay, so then uh, I also we've we spent some time here talking about positive deviance. But uh, could you give an explanation of what that is and, and how that figures into this whole process? On positive deviance? Correct. I'm sorry, is that so, the question? Well, I'm my sorry, understanding Steve. is uh, yes. Okay. My my understanding is that positive deviance is looking for where something is working, right? So, an appreciative inquiry is in in fact a form of seeking positive deviance, but focusing on what actually is working. But oftentimes, it's uh, a situation where everybody would expect there to be failure, and and somebody is succeeding, or some group is succeeding, and trying to figure out what is it that's actually happening to help them succeed. Correct. Let me let me give you a little bit of background. I need to step away just for one second. I'm very sorry. I was in I'm in my office and I'm by myself and the doorbell was ringing. I wanted that to Not stop. Not worry. Okay. Um, so positive deviance. Let me just give you a little uh, a little background because when Jerry Stern and Monique Stern went to Vietnam in the early 70s, they were charged by the Vietnamese government. And this is post-war Vietnam. They were charged by the Vietnamese government to do something about the incredible malnutrition and terrible health problems they were having with the children uh, there. And they were given essentially six months to do their work, which they thought they just kind of laughed. I mean, how can we do anything of substance in six months and make it work? And at that point, uh, you know, and his observation in his travels, Jerry and Monique. Uh, found that in some of the villages, the children's malnutrition was not substantially, uh, it was substantially better. Um, and many of them were at normal weight. And so his thought process turned to, okay, we, we have the problem confronting us, but what about the people who aren't confronting that problem, even though they're living in the same environment, what are they doing differently? So he made it his you know, mission the first few months to go to these villages, weigh in these weigh in these children on a regular basis and then talk to the mothers, talk to the fathers and find out what it was that they were eating um, and found out some very different approaches to consuming the, where the children were fed many times a day small meals as opposed to a few times a day. They were fed with greens which were considered to be in, by many of the people substandard food but the greens actually provide a great nutritional value, so they were being fed that. They were being fed some uh, brine shrimp that the other villagers, for the most part, were not. And so he kept doing this investigation and pretty soon was able to put together what these so-called positive deviants were doing. These are people who were deviating from the norm, but in a positive way. And based upon that, uh, based upon the work that they did over the next couple of years, because obviously the Vietnamese government felt the work they did was substantial enough, they felt that they had saved a couple of million children from nu nutrition. So using that whole experience as a framework for his continued work uh, as an academic person and as a, uh, a leader, he, he developed this positive deviance initiative. And to our knowledge, there's no substantial work that's being that's going on right now in the country uh, using positive deviance approach in the public schools. Uh, or private schools for that matter. We don't know of any according to our consultant. We do know that a few years back there was some work being done in some New Jersey high schools uh, on uh, trying to improve discipline issues uh, where they were using a positive deviance approach. But we think that the work we've done here in Merced is the only real experiment on this, how this approach might work at a, at a, a real system like a, a high school of 2,250 students. 
so that's where we are in terms of our philosophies. Like we're going in and talking to those students. We've set up a group of teachers who are dedicated to this program. We've trained probably over the last three years maybe a third of the staff at Merced High, and not all of them are continuing with the program as as mentors because they're on. Many of them are leaders. They're on to other things. They're department chairs and they're coaches and they're doing a million things at a high school, but they still support this process. And the current active group that we have of about ten teachers mentors meet on a weekly basis with these students, and we we pick students who are at risk of dropping out and we pick students who overcame the risk and are success are being successful and bring them together and talk and find out what it is about the students who were successful that made them that way and have them interact. We were it's reported to us from the administration at Merced High this year that they have the highest number of students on track to graduate than at any time in the school's history and it's been around for 105 years. So I mean I don't know is that positive deviance the only certainly not there's so many complex factors that go into what a school culture is made up of but do we think over three years we've made a difference in terms of how things are being looked at and what they're doing the answer is absolutely this has had a huge impact this whole strength based approach looking at a, a system as complex as a high school we're we're having we're having a uh, we're making a difference and we're making a difference to families and to students and that's what's so gratifying about this because it's relatively low cost. And in this case, IFT administered a grant that we received from the Hewlett Foundation three years ago for $100,000. And this grant has basically lasted for three years. Um, that's impressive that we can do it for relatively low cost over a period of time um, and still have a substantial impact. And we have a research firm that's working with us to crunch the numbers and we'll ultimately have be able to go to the, get the district numbers and the CDE numbers and we'll find out whether the graduation rate has actually increased or not. But we know that it has. We have the numbers in our head but we also know that the, the difference that is that the veteran teachers are telling us of what's going on there at the school. So I want to make a connection with, uh, for you with Joseph Grandy, who's coming up on the show uh, soon, who was one of the co-authors of Crucial Conversations and now a book called Change Anything. And uh, intriguingly, they're big fans of positive deviance. I think they are using it in schools, but those of us who are listening or listening to the recording will smile because I think they're actually doing work for KIPP right now, the KIPP schools. Oh, is that right? Which is about as far afield from <laughs> from some of my, uh, you know, sense of where this work takes us than, than uh, anything I could imagine. But um, I, I, I love it that, that you're doing that and um, uh, I think there, there, there's a good connection there. There's a good connection to make. Okay, so um, uh, are there other groups around the country uh, with the same general focus as as your California group? Um, are you in any kind of a network? Are there other people you're talking to who are sort of uh, building bridges in the same places? Uh, that would be ideal if I could say I've talked with many of them and our affiliates um, nationally, but in truth, not. Um, while this work does go on and there's foundation work in a number of states where the teachers association has a role in, in that regard, uh, we don't see this as being institutionally a very common thing amongst our statewide affiliates. We're affiliated with the National Education Association. Obviously, we don't represent all the uh, states or all the districts in, in the country, but along with the AFT, American Federation of Teachers, uh, that's pretty much all the schools in the country. And there are certainly active collaborative efforts going on at a local level between teachers associations and school districts to um, 
to do things differently, to be responsive to the idea of teacher-driven change. Uh, I, I see that. I know that that's happening. Uh, but I say it's more locally based um, in terms of a statewide affiliation like we have. Um, say Minnesota is one of the places that we looked at. I know they have an active education foundation. Uh, Washington State is another place that we looked at with the Washington Education Association. But the National Education Association has some work. They have a foundation and do a great deal of work in terms of grant giving and those types of things. But those are the exceptions rather than the rule, I would think. So if somebody's not in California and they want to try and make connections with people who are committed to the same kind of work, what, how would they search for them? What, uh, what are sort of the key phrases? Is it positive deviance, appreciative inquiry, strength-based learning? Are there any are there phrases that I've missed that would be good ways of discovering people doing this kind of work? Um, those are all good phrases. You know, we chose as, as our mantra, teacher-driven change. And that's our, what our website is, teacherdrivenchange.org. One word. That, to me, that's, tries to encapsulate what we're talking about. Um, you know, obviously, the people, well, let me step back. Our, our foundation is headed up by a board of directors. Um, and on the board of directors happens to be the three executive officers of CTA, president and vice president, and the secretary treasurer who are elected statewide. And our association leaders, all three of them, very supportive. So people that they talk to during their travels, they have a lot of discussion as they go about doing their business uh, with other state affiliates. And so I know they've talked about the idea of teacher-driven change and the kind of traction we're getting with our members in this approach. And uh, I'm, I'm hopefully utilizing them to be kind of our outreach to other states and other places. But if people are just looking for this idea and see some value in it, then you could capture it in the phrases that you described or that I just described to teacher-driven change. So I'm wondering about the role of parents in this process. Um, uh, do you find that parents are good supporters, and in what ways, and, and how can they be a part of the change process? We think parents are a <clears throat> crucial part of the process. And um, two ways that we try to institutionalize that as part of our IFT work, one is that um, when we score our grant applications, we have an annual grant program where we give educator grants up to $5,000 or chapter grants up to $20,000 to our members or to our affiliates to promote this idea of teacher-driven change and the, the idea that the local association has a role in promoting that. So part of our scoring matrix is on parent relations. I mean, community relations, parent relations are two of the seven factors that we believe are part of the culture of success. And it's those seven factors that we've put into a matrix to, that we use to score our grant applications. So we consider that to be a huge component, and that's something that we've institutionalized in terms of our scoring. The second thing is that we give to other organizations financially if we feel that their approach to change is something that is consistent with our philosophy and can yield good results. And as a consequence, for the last three years, we've been an active supporter uh, for a group based in Sacramento called the Parent Teacher Home Visit Project. And they're quite a dynamic group of people who understand the value and promote the idea of um, you know, teach, well, just what it says, teachers visiting parents in their own home. Because we know that putting it in the home is where you're going to get the most level of comfort and the most ability to connect. And so the parent, the teachers that are involved in this project um, 
they go out in pairs. That's one of the requirements of the project is to make sure that they are paired up with someone else. I think it levels, lessens a level of anxiety. They go out in pairs. They are they are trained uh, in terms of how to conduct themselves when when in when in people's homes. Um, they're not targeted visits. We're not just singling out struggling students to get these visits. We want the visits to be widespread. So we our whole focus is on trying to be inclusive, include all the parents in this. Uh, they're designed to boost you know, their success of their kids. So there's discussion about academics in the part of this process. And uh, we, we compensate the teachers for doing this, for going outside of the school day uh, to visit these parents. So those, those are essentially the five conditions that this program operates under. And uh, they've achieved not only success in the Sacramento Bay Area, but they've transported a lot of their learnings uh, to a variety of states. I attended their national project, uh, their national conference in uh, Reno, California. Uh, Reno, California. How about Reno, Nevada? Let me go a little closer. Uh, last October, and they had representatives from uh, uh, 15 different states. Nearly 200 teachers and parents were at this thing. Um, so they're getting some traction. So we feel like that parent connection, which is so crucial, is somehow, somehow made a part of what we do on a regular basis. And we speak out about that when we're talking to people who are applying for grants, talking about where's the component here that can help bring in the parents or involve them in some way in a, in a, in a positive, strength-based way. So that's, you know, that goes without saying. If you're a parent yourself, you probably have had the experience of knowing. You have a fair amount of influence on what the, the kids do. And, um, my two children, 31 and 28, they managed to survive the rigors of public education. And uh, sometimes it was a struggle, as all parents go through. But we think it's essential to make that commitment to your kids all the way through. So I want to ask you about two other programs before we finish. I also want to invite the audience to ask any questions, which if you would like to ask Dick a question, you can either put it in the chat or you can raise your hand. That's the third icon over in the participant window. But I want to make sure that we that we ask you about teacher think tanks and the What Works conference. So can we start okay. with the teacher think tanks? Sure. Um, this is the big project that IFT undertook this year um, with the idea that there was a we needed to have a place where our classroom practitioners could become involved in the work of their uh, teachers union in a way that showed support for the kinds of things that they're doing and support for the intellect and you know power of their ideas that they can bring to the table. So <clears throat> the IFT board authorized us to, to begin to invite <clears throat> with recommendations from a variety of sources what we consider to be the big picture people in our profession. Those if you went to a school district <clears throat> or to a school and say who's your best teacher here and then find out not only are they the best teacher, but they also have a clue about what the issues are that are facing our profession. Uh, those are exactly the type of people that we try to, you know, invite and try to, I don't know, what's the word, hopefully idealize enough that they can have a difference, make a difference, not just see it as another meeting. So over the course of about uh, a month in February of this year, we convened our first uh, eight think tanks. Because California is such a large state and physically getting people together was difficult, we convened eight think tanks statewide. So our organization is broken up into four regions, so two in each of the four regions. So it's basically the Northern California Bay Area where we have uh, two. We have two in the Central Valley, Fresno and Stockton. 
we have a couple of them down in Southern California in San Diego and Moreno Valley, and we have two in the urban area of the, the Los Angeles area in uh, Monrovia and in Oxnard. And so we've convened, I'm going to say between 50 and 60 teachers have attended. And the power of the conversations, according to our facilitators, has just been overwhelming. And each of the people that's involved uh, brings something different to the table. But bringing them together as a group where they can talk about anything or we have no script in advance. We had a couple of questions that were thrown out as, you know, get the conversation started type questions, you know. But really, these, each of the think tanks has gone off in their own kind of direction. And we haven't done anything about bringing each of the groups together and whether we're going to do that or not. Right now, they're operating at this regional level. And we're probably in our second or third round of discussion with each of the groups. And they're developing an identity. They're developing some cohesion. And they're developing a great amount of um, energy around ideas that they believe um, are going to make a difference in the whole educational system. The question now is how we bring those ideas to the forefront. And I'm happy to say that one of the people who's the biggest supporter of this whole think tank process is a gentleman by the name of Dean Vogel, who was recently elected and is now serving his first year as president of CTA. And he really sees these think tank groups as being integral to helping us as a union uh, identify you know, with the reform movement that's out there that we have a voice and that we have a voice that needs to be heard and that uh, we have the credible people who are the big you know, the big picture people who know how to do the job in the classroom. So it's been very gratifying watching these think tanks develop, and that's pretty much where we are with that kind of a end objective, letting it more or less organically, we're going to determine how this stuff's going to continue. But we're pretty excited after two months of knowing that there's powerful conversations happening around the state and that we're sponsoring them. Yes, Peggy's asking that same question I think you are, which is, what's the next step and how do you move it to action? Right, and that is the big question. And you know, I have to operate through a board of directors, and and uh, I want to share with them uh, this year at our last meeting uh, what we've learned and what we're hearing, and let them tell us um, what their vision is for how this kind of uh, how this kind of information can be utilized. But you know, I could tell you just very briefly. We tried an experiment last week in Los Angeles where we brought several of the think tank members into a meeting of the CTA staff that work in the Instructional Professional Development Department to try to inform their staff meeting with some discussion from real teachers who have real ideas. And it was it changed the whole dynamic of the meeting. That's all I can tell you is that all of a sudden, you're having people who are really doing the work in the room, which is not to say that many of the staff haven't been former teachers. We all have been former teachers. But I haven't taught since 1996. And I know that that's about the time when things really began to change in this, in this state in terms of standards-based education and all the stuff that's come down since then. And I think all of us who've been out of the classroom for a while can certainly learn a lot from these practitioners. And so that kind of thing where uh, a department manager asked for input from our think tank people meant a lot to me because it says they can, we can help utilize these people to formulate some real, not only interesting discussions, but perhaps some policy uh, down the road. Okay. So with only a few minutes remaining, what's the What Works Conference? Um, we did a What Works conference as an outgrowth of um, a grant that we obtained from the Packard Foundation a few years ago to promote early childhood education, believing you know, that that kind of level, foundational level of education is so important in improving every, the whole system as a whole. We 
formed an alliance with the Early Childhood Education Committee of our state council to work and to try to formulate strength-based ideas that can improve early childhood education. And because we didn't physically have the money to bring everybody together to share those ideas, we decided to do one of the virtual conferences. I'm sure you've all heard about uh, the, the platforms that are out there to do a virtual conference where we aligned people. We tried to get a practitioner, a researcher, and a policymaker, and we created these panel discussions with each different topic, but utilizing that perspective from each so that you had someone who was a realist who was performing the duties on the ground. You had someone who was able to talk about what we know in terms of the research world, and then you had someone who talked about how this might translate into a policy. We had uh, a really good variety of people that signed up. Somewhere around 700 people signed up for that, and like any virtual conference, you do it at your own. You can either do it live, as you guys know, or you can we recorded everything, or you can go and, and into the archives and listen to it. Uh, but we tried to make it interactive. We tried to have you know big speakers. We brought uh, Mark Munger, our guy from our consultant from the Positive Deviance Initiative, to talk about what he could uh, offer in terms of early childhood education ideas from a positive deviance perspective. Um, we had the you know the nurtured heart approach. We talked about a lot about student resilience, and there was a great deal of uh, of uh, happiness around the idea of among the people who participated that they liked the format, they liked being able to attend a conference in their pajamas and not have the expense, and they would do it again if that opportunity presented itself. So that IFT, we have our ideas out about possibly conducting another virtual conference down the road. But we felt that it was a really good culmination of about three years worth of activity we'd undertaken around early childhood ed in the state uh, under this Packard grant. Okay, so we have just a couple of minutes left. If you have a question for Dick, please feel free to put it in the chat. Uh, Kay is asking, are you aware of the VIVA project? This is a teacher-based organization that is trying to influence education policy through teachers' voices. And can you spell that project? V-I-V-A. I'm not aware of the VIVA project. I'm writing it down to become aware of it, because it sounds like it's along the same lines of our approach completely. Good, Kay. If you have a link, I'm sure that Dick would appreciate it. If you have a, if anyone else has a question for Dick, you can raise your hand using the raise hand icon, the third one over in the participant window, or putting it in the chat. Um, Dick, I actually think that our community may have some value to you. So Classroom 2.0 is a social network for educators focused on social media. But we use the Ning networking technology, and it's a very good way to bring people together in a um, an asynchronous discussion platform, uh -huh. meaning not uh, live, not uh, real time, but forum discussions and the like. And it uh, seems like maybe we could help kind of bridge whatever organizations are doing this kind of work or help you become the bridge for um, kind of building a community of people who are interested in this. And I'm particularly interested if the audience has any sense of what might be a good phrase to use. Is it teacher-driven change? I actually think it's more than that because I think there's student involvement and there's this local piece and uh, positive parent engagement. Um, you know, I'd be interested if there was something more encompassing. Okay, the link we have for Viva is vivateachers.org. Okay. And there is, uh, oh, they have a teacher community on EdWeb. 
which is another uh, social networking platform. Got it. And let's see. Uh, uh, Peggy's also saying it could become a conversation on the admin to a TCAL Ning site to reach administrators, and that's California-based. And that's uh, and there's a link there in the chat as well. Are you still not seeing the the window I'm, for? I'm with, I'm back on it. No, I got it. Okay. I'm back on it. Okay, good. Because I was going to say we could copy this and get them to you. No, I managed to renavigate. Okay, we probably have time for one final question. If anybody has one. Dick, this has really been fun. I'm uh, delighted to kind of make acquaintance with you. I think uh, you've brought together a number of different threads that have been a part of our interview series in a, a really cohesive way. And I'd, I'd love to find, find a way for us to be supportive of your work. I would love to join your community. I really am happy about being not only invited, but then realizing that the kinds of stuff that we're talking about uh, are things that you've already discussed and you have values that uh, are compatible. Uh, so I will definitely continue to follow. I just want to make one uh, follow-up because um, we're talking about books and we're talking about um, uh, positive deviance. There's a book out there about that, but there's another book called Switch by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. Um, and they refer to uh, Jerry Sternin's positive deviance as the bright spots. So if you come across that phrase, bright spots, uh, that comes right out of the second chapter of their book of finding the bright spots, which they lead off with a discussion of Sternin's approach. So I, I don't know how, I know some people find that phrase positive deviance a little off-putting because it seems oxymoronic, but, uh, and so that's been, a, that's been an issue for us as we go out and try to spread the word on that. So if the word bright spots makes people a little more comfortable, that's another phrase that you might find support for out in the literature. Terrific. So those of you who have been okay, interested in the thanks. topics, are you still there? Yeah. Those of you, those of you who have been interested in the topics, uh, next Thursday, Joseph Granny from Crucial Conversations and Change Anything will be on and he will likely uh, will be talking about positive deviance and uh, vital behaviors. Um, Jennifer Fox, who did write uh, Your Child's Strengths and has started a school in strengths-based um, learning, will be on on the 10th. Let's see if there are any other connections here with a guest coming up. I think those are the primary ones. And Steve, these are all at the same time, at 5 p.m. Pacific? Yeah, they typically are, although there are a couple of um, exceptions. But if you go to futureofeducation.com, it does list the times, and they typically sure. at this time. Great. Dick, thank you so much for coming on. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Kathleen, did you have a question, or were you just clapping? I'm going to guess that was just clapping. Okay, thanks, Dick. Thanks, everybody, for being <laughs> okay, here. Have a great Appreciate night. It. Take care. Good night, everyone. Good night. Bye now. Goodbye.